Well, hello. Uh, thanks for having me here this morning. Uh, if you missed it earlier, my name's um, Matt Kennedy. Um, normally part of Petersham Baptist, well, we are part of Petersham Baptist Church. Normally, uh, go there. Uh, when I came last time, uh, we didn't have George with us. He, uh, well, he was with us, but he wasn't out in the world. Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure if it's still on TV. Uh, it's probably not. But I did end up watching an episode or two of The Shire. I don't know if anyone knows the TV show I'm talking about, reality TV show, The Shire. I wonder if anyone else is brave enough to admit they might have seen an episode. Maybe just an ad on TV. Uh, well, see, there was actually a few likeable characters. Some people that I could imagine hanging out with. Some people I could imagine being friends with. But, to be honest, there were some who really just made me shudder. The way that they, they dressed, they talked, it, it just made me want to run in the opposite direction. And to be honest, they're the kind of people that I really didn't, I wouldn't want to have to interact with very much. Now, I know it sounds a little bit blunt, it sounds very harsh, writing people off just because of the way that they dress or the talk or the, or the things that they do. But I think we all know people, or at least we've met people, that we really just don't have a lot of time for. Perhaps whole groups of people, suburbs even. There are certain people we just don't enjoy. And it's hard to love and value people if we don't get along with them. We just don't understand how they can live the way that they're living. And it's even harder to love people who've hurt us, isn't it? A friend of mine recently shared how angry and hurt he was when he found out that some friends of his, or some friends, were saying pretty harsh things about his wife behind her back. It's not something that you easily get over. See, loving people who've disappointed you or hurt you is really hard. So I wonder, how would you react if God was clearly asking you to be a missionary to a bunch of people you really didn't like? People you didn't have any time for, maybe people who'd hurt you. Hurt you, your friends, or your family. How would you respond if God was asking you to love and serve people who really didn't seem to deserve it from your point of view? I don't think I'd be rejoicing as I packed my bags. Well, this is a situation Jonah was in. God had commanded him to go and preach to the Ninevites, people who were his national enemies, people he really hated. And today we're going to look at the final chapter of this little book. And I think God's got some important things to say to us about uh, how we view ourselves and how we view others. Now, uh, we haven't heard the rest of the story of Jonah, but um, I think a number of us have probably heard it um, countless times over our life. It's a fascinating story about a runaway prophet. See, God wants Jonah to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. He's got to warn the Ninevites that God is going to destroy the city because of their violence and their sin. But Jonah is not very keen for the job. In fact, he runs in the opposite direction. And uh, that doesn't go very well for him. But eventually he gets a second chance and he does go and preach this message of doom to the people of Nineveh. And how do the people respond? Well, it's there in chapter 3. From the least to the greatest to the king himself, they all took the message to heart and they repented of their evil ways. They cried out to God for compassion, hoping that perhaps God would be merciful. 
And how did God respond to their response? Well, we read at the very end of chapter 3, the last verse, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God showed compassion because they repented when they heard Jonah's message of judgment. But how did Jonah respond to God's response to the Ninevites' response? So that's where chapter 4 comes in. And this is really the point of the whole book. So there's lots of important things that we learn along the way in the book of Jonah. Uh, Lots of important things about God and ourselves. But chapter 4 is the climax. Because the thing is that Jonah is furious. He's disgusted. He's actually disturbed. If you read with me from chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah's angry that God has shown compassion to these people and not carried out the judgment he said was coming to them. Jonah is disturbed by God's show of mercy to these people. It actually seems evil to him. Now, there's a bit of a wordplay between chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 1, that can get a little bit lost in translation. So there's a Hebrew word for evil that has a a wide range of meaning and it's used in a couple of different ways to emphasise Jonah's reaction. You can see, uh, hopefully see on the screen. Oh, did I do that? Uh, Maybe you uh, perhaps get rid of that. um, If you just get rid of that little uh, box thing there. Just press the button. Oh, okay, yep. Uh-huh. Great, thanks. (laughs) All right. So you can see on the screen, um, the words in bold are the same root word in Hebrew. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, the fact that God relented of sending evil on these people after they turned from their evil ways was itself evil. So if you translated verse 1 of chapter 4 very directly, it would read, But it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he became angry. See, Jonah is really disturbed by God's show of mercy to these people. It actually seems evil to him. And he's not just disturbed, he's angry about it. And so now it all comes out. This is what, just what Jonah had been afraid of all along, God's mercy, his disturbing evil mercy and so Jonah vents his frustration to God this is why I packed up and fled in the opposite direction it's not because he was afraid of the big bad Ninevites it's because he knew what God was like see did you notice how Jonah describes God in verse 2 I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity It's a classic description of God. It's what God said about himself to Moses way back on Mount Sinai. This is who I am. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. I'm slow to anger. And Jonah knew his theology. He knew what God was like. But it troubled him. 
Because he could see what might happen if he went to warn his enemies that their evil was angering God. They might just repent. And God, because he's so frustratingly merciful, well, he might just forgive them. And this is so evil to Jonah. He's so indignant about it that he'd rather be dead. So in verse 3, he comes to his request, kill me now. I'd rather die than live in a world where you forgive people like the Ninevites. Now, is he getting a little carried away? Is his anger justified? Well, God asks this very question in verse 4. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? And that's the key question, isn't it? Does Jonah have any right to be angry? Is there anything right about his anger? And what if we sometimes share in that anger? What if we sometimes find God's grace to certain people a little bit disturbing at times? Well, in a sense, Jonah does have a right to be angry, doesn't he? The Ninevites really did deserve judgment. Assyria was a wicked nation, and surely to simply overlook their actions, well, that would be equally wicked, wouldn't it? If you're familiar with the history of the Old Testament, you'll know that Assyria was a violent and wicked nation. They were ruthless and they were determined to conquer the known world. And the Assyrian army, they did horrendous things to the other people groups as they expanded their empire. They did things to people and to children even that just make my stomach turn when you read about it. See, we don't just let murderers go free if they say sorry in court, do we? Imagine if a jury and a judge let a murderer go just because he said he was sorry and he cried out for mercy. Imagine if he'd murdered your own friend, your own sister, your own child. I think you'd have your own share of rage at the corruption and the injustice. So how can God just overlook the sins of the Ninevites? He's supposed to be a God of justice, isn't he? Well, there are two things that we can't forget. Firstly, even if God appears to be letting people get away with murder in this world, he's promised to establish justice once and for all on his great day of judgment. It's a really strong message throughout the whole Bible. People will get what they deserve in the end. God has promised justice. But secondly, even if God did completely forgive that generation of Ninevites for their violence, even if he never held that sin against them, he's gone to great personal sacrifice to make it possible. God paid the ultimate price to make it possible for him to deal justly with sin on the one hand, and on the other hand, to show mercy to sinners who repent and ask for it. See, in Romans chapter 3, we read, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, it's true, isn't it, that there's a sense in which God has been overlooking the sins of humanity, not fully punishing people like the Ninevites as they deserve. 
God has promised justice at the end of history rather than just uh, zapping every sinner the moment they do anything wrong. But something incredible has happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus, hasn't it? God brought that great day of judgment forwards into a moment in history. And as he was hanging on the cross, Jesus was enduring the judgment of God for all the violent, selfish, and proud sins of humanity. So sin is no longer left unpunished. And God did this. He took this suffering upon himself in the flesh so that he could be both just and the justifier of those who cry out for mercy. He did it so that he can offer forgiveness to those who repent and call out for mercy without ignoring their sin and the pain that it's caused. So Jonah had no reason to accuse God of injustice. It may have looked and felt horribly unjust, but God has gone to great personal sacrifice to be both just and merciful. So whilst we might appreciate Jonah's anger at God for letting the Ninevites go free, Jonah's rage was mistaken. We should work against violence and injustice in this world, but we don't need to worry that God is just letting people get away with it. And so the real answer to God's question is no. No, you don't have any right to be angry, Jonah. In fact, there's a whole lot that's wrong with Jonah's anger. It shows that he's misunderstood himself, he's misunderstood the Ninevites, and he's misunderstood God. But God doesn't just say, shut up, Jonah, you don't know what you're talking about. Instead, he shows him why he's got no right to be angry. So in verses 5 to 10, we read about a bizarre series of events involving Jonah and a vine that lead into a final dialogue between Jonah and God. Have a read with me from verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So this is happening during the 40 days that's leading up to that day when Jonah had prophesied God was going to overturn Nineveh. He'd done his job. He'd given his message of doom. uh, And and then he'd continued out the other side of the city. And after getting a safe distance away, he'd put together some kind of shelter and he was just sitting there waiting for the fireworks to happen. Now, given what we know about his attitude towards the Ninevites, you can imagine him waiting almost with a kind of glee. It would have been horrible conditions. Rocks, dust desert, blistering sun. But Jonah can put up with it. See, it's all just part of being a doomsday prophet. And it'll all be worth it if he gets to see Nineveh destroyed from above. But for God, this provides a perfect opportunity to teach Jonah a lesson about his hard-hearted nationalism. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Now it's worth knowing that that Hebrew word for evil or trouble pops up here again, translated as discomfort. You see, God shows kindness towards Jonah to deliver him from his evil circumstances. And he's absolutely delighted about it. He couldn't be happier about this wonderful vine that seems to have popped up out of nowhere, giving him shade from the harsh sun. In fact, that phrase describing his happiness about the vine was an exact parallel of his earlier disgust at God's grace. So a very direct translation would be... Oh, hang on. How do I go back? Is that pretty much impossible? (laughs) Can I go back a few slides? Okay. Silver at the bottom. 
Sorry, not very technically gifted. If we just start it again and I'll click through. Okay, don't worry about that. Anyway, a very very direct translation would be, Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great joy. Now, I'm not giving these translations because I think they're better than the NIV. They're not. The NIV is giving the proper sense of the phrase. It's just helpful to notice the links that can sometimes get a little bit lost in translation. And the important thing that we notice is that Jonah is overjoyed when God is showing kindness to him, but he's disgusted when God is showing kindness to his enemies. So throughout the whole book, Jonah's more than ready to receive mercy and blessing for himself, isn't he? But there's a stubborn reluctance to see his enemies receive the same. And that's why God spices things up for Jonah a little bit. So read from verse 7 with me. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah's had it. He doesn't care about the fireworks on Nineveh anymore. It's all too much for him. His beloved vine has died and now he's about to pass out from heat exhaustion. He just doesn't want to live in a world that's so mixed up that his precious vine can die overnight. And at this point, God asks the all-important question. God says to Jonah, in verse 9, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? So how does Jonah respond? Does he think he's got any reason to be angry? Yes, I'm angry about the vine. I'm so angry I could die. Now, it just comes across as a little bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Really, Jonah, you're that angry about your vine. You're so angry that, you'd, that, that God could let your precious plant die that you would rather be dead. Now it's easy to point and laugh at jo- uh, Jonah's childish tantrum from a distance and I think the narrative is meant to make us laugh at him a little bit. But it's also meant to make us feel a little bit uneasy. Because we've all been there, haven't we? Something happens something that, well, it's actually quite trivial. If only we could just step back a bit and see things objectively, but the rage boils up inside of us. Now, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, um, just try getting behind a wheel and driving somewhere in Sydney. It's incredible how naturally the indignation, the disbelief at how stupid other people can be, how naturally those things can boil up inside of you. And we, we become our own righteous prophets of destruction behind the wheels of a car. Maybe it's just me. Now, maybe we don't often cry out to God to kill me now. But I think through this story, God is challenging a tendency in all of us. A tendency for self-absorbed anger when things are not going our way. Think for a moment. How do you respond when people push in front of you in a queue? 
They take something that belongs to you. They eat your lunch from the fridge at work. Or they play loud music when you're trying to sleep. Now, these are just trivial examples. Uh, And we know it's childish to get angry at people for just getting in our way. It's like we're being a self-absorbed toddler throwing a tantrum. But there are all sorts of genuinely painful experiences that many, if not all of us, have gone through. Of losing someone that we really love or going through chronic physical suffering. Times when we might just wonder whether life is worth living. Times when we're frustrated and angry with God. Times when we might just think, what is the point? What are you doing, God? And I don't want to trivialize this suffering in any way. You might be going through stuff right now that I've never had to deal with. You might be angry at people who've really hurt and disappointed you. But the question we need to ask ourselves when we're angry, when that deep indignation boils up inside of us, whether it's for a pathetic reason, like someone driving too slow over a speed bump in front of us, or for something serious, like long-term chronic fatigue. The question we need to ask ourselves is, why am I so angry? Do I have a right to be angry? Does God owe me something different? And Jonah's example is actually really helpful, because on the one hand, he, was, he really was going through some serious suffering and discomfort out there in the blazing heat of the desert. But on the other hand, it's so clear that he's relating to God like a spoiled little toddler. And so without denying that suffering is real and that life can be genuinely hard and painful, we need to learn to reflect critically at our anger, uh, at people and at the situations that God throws at us. We need to ask ourselves, where is my attitude coming from? Am I reacting like this because I think deep down I'm more important than other people? And so the next time something happens to you, stop yourself and ask yourself some questions. I'm convinced that all of us tend to operate on the assumption that we're actually the centre of the universe unless we work really hard to remind ourselves that we're not. So let the book of Jonah expose your heart and if you need to, repent of arrogance and self-absorption. Well, coming back to the story, God has a little chat with Jonah about his anger. He basically says, let's have a little think about this anger of yours, Jonah. So from verse 10, the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So it's a simple point, isn't it? If you care so much about a one-day-old plant that you didn't even grow... How much more must I care about a city full of animals and human beings that I have lovingly created and sustained? See, God has trapped Jonah, hasn't he? He's lured him into raging over the demise of his poor little vine, and in doing so, Jonah can't help but admit how much more reason God must have to be concerned for the life of the Ninevites. If he has any right to be angry about the vine... Well, he has absolutely no right to be angry about God's compassion to Nineveh. See, Jonah's anger over God's mercy is wrong because he hadn't grasped that God actually loves all people, even the enemies of his own chosen people, even if they are violent and barbaric. 
See, sure, Jonah knew that God was compassionate and abounding in love, and he even quotes that back to God, doesn't he, in verse 2. But he hadn't really grasped it. He, he didn't really know it at all. So we can't just fill our held heads with facts about God, can we? Because good theology doesn't get, it any, doesn't get you anywhere if it hasn't gripped your heart. And the reason Jonah hadn't grasped the reality of God's love and compassion is because he thought that he actually deserved it. He hadn't grasped that he was ultimately just like the Assyrians, equally sinful, equally self-absorbed, equally bent towards his own will rather than God's. And because he hadn't grasped this, when God showed kindness to him, like saving him from drowning or providing a shady vine over his head, well, it was good and right for God to show that kindness to him, wasn't it? But the truth that Jonah needed to grasp hold of and that we constantly need reminding of is that God loves all people because he is a loving God, not because we're lovable people. He loves us because of who he is and not because of who we are. And this is the purpose of this little book, to expose arrogant and harsh attitudes in our own hearts, to expose that deep-down assumption that we're better than other people, more deserving than certain other kinds of people, and to invite us to embrace God's own view of the world, to grasp in a fresh way the depths of God's love for us as selfish, broken people and the depths of God's love for others as selfish, broken people. See, God's calling us through these pages to know with all our heart and mind that every, human, every single human being is equally sinful and deserving of judgment, no matter how upright or cultured they are, but that every single human being is also equally valuable in God's sight, no matter how sinful and messed up they are. So the response we need to have to the book of Jonah is to see the world through God's eyes and not through Jonah's. God is challenging us to relate to other people with grace and love, no matter how little we think they deserve it. The story exposes in our own attitudes, uh, exposes our own attitudes towards other people. Because like Jonah, we can write off other people as just not worth our time or our effort, maybe not even worth forgiveness. Perhaps if we do show concern for others, deep down it can come from self-interest. We love others because of what they can do for us, not because we necessarily want to see them be blessed. So think for a moment about the people you love, the people that you happily serve. Why do you love these people? Why don't you love the people that you don't love? Are there people, maybe it's a particular person at work, a neighbour, maybe a certain type of person, a whole subculture within Sydney even, that you'd rather avoid? To put it bluntly, you don't really want to see them again. Now maybe that sounds too blunt, too crass. Surely we're not so shallow to just you know, write people off like that. But I don't really think so. I think unless you're all much further down the path to perfection than me, and that is very possible, but I do think that we're all very open to seeing particular kinds of people as just not worth our time. People perhaps who find their way onto reality TV shows like The Shire. 
But we've got to be gripped by God's love of people, the way he views them. So we don't gloss over their sin and their brokenness. We don't even pretend that we really like everyone. We just need to learn to see people as God sees them, someone that he's lovingly created and sustained, someone that he wants to transform to be like Christ. And that's really the point of God showing mercy to us in the first place, isn't it? See, he doesn't just save us to prevent us from dying. He saves us to transform us, to be like him, to love like Christ, to learn to love our enemies as our heavenly father does, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse, to stop and care for the the man who obviously needs our help, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jonah had not grasped this. He was thankful that he'd been saved from drowning. He was thankful for God's grace, but that was good enough for him. He hadn't grasped that the point of God's grace is to transform him to love his enemies just like the God who had saved him. See, Jonah hated his enemies so much that he'd rather die than see them saved. Whereas Christ has loved us enough to die so that we could be saved. And God is calling us to love like Christ, not to live like Jonah to lay down our lives for others, whether they deserve it or not. Now that sounds pretty difficult. So how are we going to learn to love like that? Do we just clench our fists and try harder tomorrow? Well, no, we've got to keep coming back to the love that God has first shown us. The more we appreciate how little we've deserved that love and sacrifice the more that we'll appreciate the lengths that he's gone to in saving us. God has loved us to the extent of giving up his one and only son to endure the pain that we deserve so that we might live. The more we soak ourselves in the wonder of this love, the more we'll be shaped by it, the more that we'll be able to love others with it. And that's why Paul so often prayed for the churches he was writing to, that they'd be able to grasp the depths of God's love for us. Prayers like this one in Ephesians. I don't know if it's possible to get that back up on the screen, the last slide, sorry. Maybe I'll just read it out, sorry, don't worry. Okay. This is my worst PowerPoint performance ever. Yep, that would be great. So Paul prays prayers like this one for the churches he's writing to. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So one of the most helpful things that we can do for ourselves and for each other is to earnestly pray that we might grasp the depths of God's love for us. And I really need to do this. I think you guys need to do this. So I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm deeply convinced of the truth of the gospel, but I can easily forget the riches of God's love for me. In particular, I can forget the depths of God's love for people that I don't really have a lot of time for myself. 
See, the take-home point is not just to pray more. The take-home point, the thing that we should do later today and tomorrow morning and next week, is to pray that you and your family, your friends, the people in your Bible study, the rest of the people here at Dremoyne Baptist would be filled with a profound sense of the love of God in Christ. And to pray that as a result, God would enable us to see other people through his eyes, to know how valuable they are to him, and to love and serve them no matter how they treat us. To pray regularly for God to teach you to love broken, selfish, even disturbingly violent people as much as he does. And to value their standing before God more than your own comfort and rights. Why don't we pray now? Heavenly Father, we want to take a moment to thank you, to just humble ourselves before you, to recognize that we don't deserve your grace and kindness towards us, that we're no better than anyone else, no more deserving. And so we thank you so much that you have loved us so greatly at such great personal cost to yourself. And we pray that you would impress in our hearts and minds deeply the reality of that love and that it would cause us to stop and wonder at how gracious you are. And I pray that that love and, and grasping hold of that love would transform us and it would transform our attitudes towards other people. As we come across people that we would rather not spend time with, that you would teach us to love them as you love them, to see them as you see them and that we would gladly lay down our lives and our comfort and our time, that uh, we might bless them and love them and share your good news with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.